coming out in this cold weather. It's, it's quite the uh, mystery developing a sermon. My part, I feel like I wrestle with the Lord and pray and say, what, what do you want? I've got a whole bunch of thoughts. And the other night, I woke up in the night and was wrestling with it, tossing around on the bed, and it's kind of like I got the download. Boom, I got, all right, here it is. And then I work on it the next day and try to put together what the Lord wants me to say. So the title of the message today is The Next Right Thing. And I don't have a scripture reading right up front. We're going to do it a little bit later on. I was counting up while we were uh, singing that Gail and I have been members of six churches in our adult life. Some of them I was a pastor of, others we were just part of. But I would guess in most churches, over 100 people, you have quite a variety of different groups within the congregation. And it, it was always a challenge for who you're going to talk to in the group. Uh, so in a church, even our size, you, you may have some people that haven't made a decision yet to, to accept Christ, to trust what he did for them. They're coming maybe with a friend, somebody invited them, maybe their girlfriend or boyfriend. They're kicking the tires, they're maybe listening and trying to figure out what's going on. You have a whole other group of people that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, but if you ask them what that looks like in their daily life, it may just be some stuff they do or don't do. You know, they may have developed a little bit of a value system they heard about. But it may be fuzzy on what, what do I do to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ? How do I develop as his follower? Then I think there's a whole other group of people who have been churchgoers for a long, long time. For some, being a follower of Jesus is so ingrained in them, they don't even give it much thought. Their lives are on autopilot. There isn't much thinking required. They just do what they always did. And then finally, there's a group of people made up of all the ages who are seeking to grow in their faith and desiring to grow stronger in their daily lives. And that would be my prayer for all of us. No matter where we find ourselves this morning, we're never done. Uh, Gail and I just celebrated our 51st anniversary yesterday, and we both turned 70 this year, but there's still a lot of growing to do. There's still a lot of growing in our spiritual lives. There's still stuff we could learn to have a better marriage and just constantly working on it. That's just part of the Christian life is we're not done till we get there. So a person's age and length of time that he or she has professed to be a Christian doesn't have much to do with anything to do with the level of maturity that you've developed in your life. No matter where you are in your spiritual life, today's message is going to lay out a plan 
that you can take to propel you towards spiritual growth and a closer walk with Jesus, which is what I hope everyone here wants. So, for the last bunch of years, I, I like to boil the sermon down to a sentence. That doesn't mean you can leave after I give you the sermon in a sentence. But if you did, you'd know what the message was about. And so, the sermon in a sentence today is, do the next right thing. You realize if you go through the rest of the day and you just continually do the next right thing, you're going to have a good day. You'll honor Christ with your day. So first I want to define for you what Christian maturity is. And here's our Bible reading for the day. It's Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 1, if you'd like to read along. I thought about having you stand, but I thought they're all going to be settled in now. You're comfortable. I'm not going to disrupt you. Let's just read it together. There's much more we would like to say about this. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews is one of the deeper letters in the New Testament. Actually, for people that study the Greek language, they say the level of Greek in the book of Hebrews is even a little loftier than most of the other letters in the New Testament. And this letter was written to a bunch of Jewish people, grew up Jewish, but now have become followers of Jesus as their Messiah. So they would have been saturated in what we call the Old Testament. I prefer to call the Hebrew Scriptures. A lot of us don't read the Old Testament much, but these people would have known it well. And there's a lot of things woven into the book of Hebrews that was designed to take their minds back to the original stories, and I'll show you one of them in a minute. But these folks were facing some persecution. Uh, they were teetering on the edge of saying this Christianity stuff is going to cost us uh, our life if we keep following and we're thinking about maybe going back to Judaism. And so the letter of Hebrews presents Jesus as better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus' sacrifice was better than any offering ever made in the temple. Jesus is better than the angels. You know, he's better than everything, basically. You need to stay with him. And there's like five really stiff warnings about going back on their faith. And so that's just a little bit of the backdrop as I go on to read now. He says, uh, there's so much more to say, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature. 
Here's a definition of maturity coming up. Who through training, for all you athletes out there, George, good kids talk today. The Greek word for training, we get our word gymnasium from. Gymnazo. You're mature because you've exercised. You've worked out. You have the skill to recognize the difference between good and evil. And you consistently exercise yourself that when you come to the fork in the road and you know what God would want you to do, you've continually exercised yourself by making that choice. That's how you get mature in Christ. It's how we grow up. Learning the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil, and choosing the good. It's spiritual exercise. So he says, let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again, and let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Let me pray quick. Father, uh, we give ourselves to you today. I pray that you would control me by your spirit, that you would just move me out of the way and allow me to be like a puppet on your knee today, just speaking your words. Talk through me and allow our hearts to be open to hear and help us all to gain some understanding and grow by being here today. In Christ's name, amen. Some of you may have heard of John MacArthur, but he says about this passage I just read, this passage teaches that spiritual maturity is more than what someone knows. It is what they put into practice. If you've been around the church a while, I almost guarantee you know more than you do. That's true of me. I know way more than I practice, unfortunately. So as we read that over, he said, um, you become mature because you recognize the difference between good and evil. Now put yourself in a Jewish mindset, thinking you're saturated with the Hebrew scriptures, and when you see the words good and evil, does anything out of the Bible pop up into your head? There's a story in the very first book of the Bible that God created man and woman. They were in a land called Eden. Adam was actually made out of the dirt of the ground of Eden. And then God made a garden and put Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the middle of garden, the garden were two trees. One tree was called the tree of life. And the other tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's where your mind ought to go. That's where the author of Hebrews wants your mind to go. All the way back to that first choosing of Adam and Eve coming to a fork in the road and taking the wrong fork. 
But in this passage, knowing the difference between good and evil is called being mature. We could say knowing good and evil is a definition of wisdom. Proverbs would support that. So why would God tell Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree? Was he holding out on them? Yes, he was. He was holding out on them. There's a pretty strong case that the word righteousness could be defined by relationships. Jesus said the entire Bible hangs on two commands. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. What are they? They're relationships. So when I love God and I'm true to God, I'm in a strong relationship with him, a right relationship. And when I do the right things by my neighbor, I'm in right relationship with them. Was God holding out on them? Yes, he was. Why? Because he wanted them to learn to discern between good and evil through their ongoing relationship with him. But when they chose to eat from the fruit, what they did was short-circuited God's plan for them. He would have taught them good from evil as they walked together in the garden and then they would have been able to eat of the tree of life and live forever. But instead, they ate of that tree, taking a shortcut, listening to the tempter's persuasion, and because of that, were actually expelled from the garden before they could get to the tree of life. So it was a shortcut. They didn't want to take the time to know God. And learn from him. And let me tell you, that is the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not really practicing religion. Christianity is having a vital relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and motivated by the Spirit of God that comes to live within us. Jesus said in John 17, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. And knowing God, he will teach us to discern between good and evil. But Adam and Eve showed their lack of trust, lack of wisdom, and lack of maturity by their choice. So maturity is having a relationship with the Lord through Jesus, taking the time to learn at his feet what he has said growing in the ability to make choices that line up with what he calls good and steering clear from choices that he calls less than good. If you would find someone that you know, someone maybe in this church, that you would consider a mature believer, 
Someone who most of the time makes God-driven choices, at least more times than not. And just for the record, none of us here are walking on water, so all of us at times still make poor choices. But praise God, he uses all of life as our teacher. And anybody that has any level of maturity, if you went and talked to them, they would probably tell you that, you know what, some of the best lessons I have ever learned from the Lord weren't when I was on the mountaintop, but when I was in the valley. After maybe a poor choice and suffering some consequences, and God in his grace just parents us, just loves on us, lets us suffer a little bit, and then teaches us through that, and says, now, maybe next time you'll be a better discerner when it comes to choose. I remember when I was a brand-new Christian, I grew up kind of uh, not in church till too late. I grew up going to parties and bar rooms and all kinds of stuff with my parents and the way I am natured I thoroughly enjoyed that life and then my parents became Christians when I was probably 10 11 12 and man church was so boring compared to all the other stuff we used to do uh, so it didn't really catch that much early and I was a uh, got saved at 21 years of age and I was a carpenter construction worker and I was on a crew with a bunch of guys and I had already told these guys that I had accepted Christ into my life I'd become a Christian and we were working one day and I was up on 30 feet of scaffolding and loved it loved the adventure and we needed a nail driven in something I'm up at the edge of 30 feet of scaffolding and I'm stretched out holding the nail out here, and I got a 20-ounce framing hammer, and I rear back, and I hit the wrong nail. And I hit my thumbnail, and I said, you, blankety-blank-blank, blank-blank-blank. I went on there for quite a while with all the vocabulary I'd learned. And none of the other guys said a word. They were all kind of looking at me. And, man, the Spirit of God who now lived in me is his son, I felt like he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. And inside, I just sensed him say to me, Son, you belong to me now. You've already told all these guys that you're, that you're following me. We're going to have to do something about this language. And he let me know that he wasn't really mad because I said a few cuss words. What he let me know was this foul language is not going to further my cause when you try to talk to these guys about me. And man, I could tell you a bunch of stories of life lessons through failure that I have learned over the years. That was just one Kind of easy one. There's a lot harder ones. 
But I'm going to say, well, I'm not going to say it. Charles Spurgeon said, none of us can come to the highest maturity without enduring the summer heat of trials. So the thing I would like you to see is this definition of maturity. And to be a growing Christian means we are exercising to where more and more we are making decisions that are informed through our relationship with Jesus Christ and from the word he has given us. And the more we learn to discern and make the best choices, the more we will grow in our faith and become stronger believers. So once you have Jesus in your life, he's going to begin growing you towards maturity. And I think one of the most exciting things to me is the world is his classroom. And every day there are so many opportunities to grow and to learn from our interactions with other people and from our own thought life and from our own good choices and our own bad choices. He just, as a gracious, kind father who's already forgiven us for everything we'll ever do, just comes along and raises us up and teaches us through all of it. There's no need to beat yourself to death. There's no need to shame yourself when you, when you blow it. But make it be your prayer, Lord, what, what do you want to teach me through this? How can I become more like you as a result of what I just learned the hard way? A second uh, major thought today comes from Luke 22, 41 through 42. Not my desire, but your will be done. Not my desire, but your will be done. Famous prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I remember several years ago how that just hit me. And I thought, holy cow, that is... That is how to live the Christian life. By Jesus' example, when he prayed in that garden, he said, Father, I, I know if you want to, you could remove this bitter cup from me, the cup of going to the cross and dying for all of our sin. It was brutal, savage. Who would want to go through that? But Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. But in his humanity, Jesus said, man, Dad, if there's any other way, please remove this cup from me. But he said these words. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And how many times a day could I pray that? Not what I want. What do you want? If you want to see your spiritual growth take off, to me, this is the single most 
powerful concept I know. Surrendering my desires and choosing God's will instead. We're probably not going to sweat blood like Jesus did wrestling with this concept in the garden. But God's probably not going to ask you and me to die for the sin of the world either. So all the choices that we're going to have are far simpler than what Jesus had to deal with. But man, it is still hard to say, man, I really want to do this. But I know it's probably not your will. What am I going to do? And I've chose Scott's will way too many times in life. A.W. Tozer said, the man who surrenders to Christ, and I'll say, or woman, exchanges a cruel slave driver for a kind and gentle master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. I remember years ago being in a hospital emergency room, and I don't really even remember why I was there. I don't think it was for me, but being a pastor, I got to the hospital quite a bit. But what I do remember this particular night, this guy being loud and obnoxious and being brought in, and I remember talking to a nurse and saying, what is wrong with that guy? And they said, oh, he's a regular here. He's alcoholic. He's drunk. He's comes in and they'll wheel him back there and let him sleep it off. They put him on a gurney and they're wheeling this guy back into a little cubicle and I hear, he touched me. Oh, he touched me. Know the joy that filled my soul. Something happened, now I know. He touched me and made me whole. Only it was slurred. And it was that drunk guy singing an old hymn. Nothing severs us from the power of God or stunts our growth toward maturity. More than saying, I know what you want, Lord. I know you know what's best. But man, I really want this. I want to do this thing, whatever it is. I'm going to choose what I want today. And that's how you can become a drunk in the emergency room singing, he touched me. He knew the right thing. But what he wanted was more powerful. So I say no. Lord, please teach me to do the next right thing. Third thing, to grow, maturity requires knowing the living and the written word of God. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, we already read, but I'm going to read a little again. 
you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching. Instead, you still need somebody to teach you, again, the basic things about God's word. You're like babies. You need milk. Cannot eat solid food yet. Still gumming it. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant. Why? Because, look, he doesn't know how to do what is right. Didn't say you don't know enough. Said you haven't learned to apply what you know. You haven't learned to do the next right thing on a regular basis. And solid food is for those who are mature, who have exercised and are choosing right. So, let me have a show of hands. No, just kidding. How many of you read your Bible before you came to church today? Don't show me your hand. How many read it yesterday or the day before or the day before that? You don't have to go crazy, but if you never read the Bible much, how are you going to know to do the nuance of choice? How are you going to know the heart and mind of God to make better choices? So what I would recommend is Start. Here's my advice. Don't start with a reading plan that makes you read the whole Bible in a year. Because you'll probably quit about Leviticus. But do something that you can develop into a habit of doing. Try start reading maybe a chapter a day. Or just get up 10 minutes early and say, I'm going to take that extra 10 minutes and I'm just going to read a chapter or two in the morning and start learning what God's Word says. And I'd recommend start with the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or read all of them just in order. You'll see some duplication, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, uh, tell their stories from a slightly different perspective, but use some of the same stories in the writings. John's kind of unique gospel. I like that one. Probably the best. Luke's second best. Why would I say read there? Because when Jesus Christ came to earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are accounts of his ministry and teaching. And he was the only perfect human that ever worked the, uh, walked the planet. He's the only one who everything he ever did, he discerned and made the right choice. And we can learn so much just from observing how he treated people and what he taught, how he talked, who he associated with, and what the message was he carried. However you read the Bible, Read those stories as if you were looking in a mirror. 
And when you sit down to open the book, say, Lord, I'm doing the next right thing this morning. I'm going to spend a little time with you first. Or if you read before you go to bed, I don't really think he cares that much. That will be starting your day for the next day. But when you read it, just say, Lord, I want to know you better. Will you show me what you're like from what I read? Will you teach me more about you and what you value and what's important to you? And Will you hone my skills? And Lord, will you show me myself? Will you show me where I need to grow, where maybe I'm dropping the ball on a regular basis and I, I need to shift some of my patterns of behavior? This is so critically important. And then when, when you come to church, ch- you know what church is here for? It's not so you can go home and say, well, did that today. This, this body of believers is here for preachers to preach and teachers to teach and servers to serve and other people to love on you and help you heal and help you learn and help you grow and every class that's offered, every Sunday school class, every time we gather here and listen to a message, every K group you're part of, every men's group, women's group, whatever the church is offering where the Word of God is going to be taught, it's another opportunity for you to learn more and grow more. And so come expecting Don't come as a spectator. Bring a notebook. Start saying, Lord, show me something in my Sunday school class today that I need to hear. Show me something about you. Show me something about me. Help me to grow in my understanding of your word and your ways. This is not a spectator sport. And this is critically important. There's uh, probably one of the most renowned New Testament scholars in our world right now. His name is N.T. Wright. And he says it, it matters because without maturity, Christians are very, very vulnerable to all kinds of trickery that may well take them a long way away from where they ought to be. And wow, don't most of us know that is true. A couple months ago, I went to a funeral for one of the godliest women I've ever known. If you ever read my books, I've talked about this godly woman in there and how the Lord used her in illustration. I'm thinking of this same woman. The preacher that was going to do the service said to the family, would you bring me her Bible? I would like to look at it. And it was funny, the family brought him a box of Bibles. She was 97. She worn out a few. She had notes written in the margins, passages underlined. She had passages highlighted with a preacher's name and date next to it. 
when she heard a sermon on that passage. She had tons of her own study notes scribbled all through it and things underlined and circled and arrows pointing the stuff back and forth. She had the names of her grandchildren when they put their faith in Christ, the date and who led them to the Lord, and her own kids. Her life was anchored by the Word of God and her relationship with Jesus. And oh yeah, she was known for the love she had for everybody. Seems like what would bleed out of the Bible to me. So I'd like to make a recommendation. You don't have to do it. I know we have everything electronically now. And probably for some of the younger generation, that feels really natural to you. But boy, I I would strongly recommend that you get a good old real Bible, study Bible with some notes and cross-references and stuff that you can underline and write in. It's not, uh, what do you call that? It's not not sacred to write in your Bible. I think a a marked-up Bible is really a, a great thing to have. Another amazing thing is once you start reading it a little bit, like when I read a digital Bible, and I do a lot, it's like I can never find what I read again. To me, it's lost somewhere. I mean, I could do a word search. But when I've focused and I've read my Bible and I've underlined something, it's like engraved in my mind. I know it's like this far back and it was on the right-hand column and I can find it again. So I just highly recommend getting a Bible, learning to love it, become familiar with it, write in it, underline it. It's really going to be difficult to do the next right thing without saturating your mind in the Scriptures. Gail and I got married, like I said, 51 years ago. And we were married about two years when I came to know the Lord. And that year she bought me a uh, study Bible for Christmas. This is it. It's got blood, sweat, and tears in it. It's got tons of notes written in the back on blank pages and references to stuff subjects I was a fighting fundy back in the day I got verses for liberals written in the back of this Bible all kinds of stuff and when this thing got wore out and I got a new Bible it was never quite the same to me I wished I would have got a new one of the exact same kind So this Bible, pristine Bible, is sitting in our living room on a lampstand where it had been ever since Christmas when I got it. And our TV blew the picture tubes. I don't even know if they have picture tubes anymore. It was back in the dark ages, young people. 
anyway, we had just bought a home and we didn't have any extra money and there was no way we were going to be able to replace the TV set. And I remember like it was yesterday and I was only like 21 years old, sitting on the end, I think the couch was gray in the living room, broken TV still sitting right there in its place, it didn't work. And I'm sitting there in the evening after building houses during the day. All we ever did was watch TV all night. And I'm sitting there like, what in the heck do you do when you don't have a TV set? I'm just sitting there kind of looking around the living room. It's like a spotlight shone down from heaven. Not really, but I saw the Bible. And I thought, maybe I ought to start reading that thing. It was intimidating, and it was overwhelming. That's a thick book, and I hated to read. I went over and picked it up. I remember opening it up, looking in the front. Presented to Scott Rank from your loving wife, Gail E. Rank. Formal. Occasion, Christmas Day, December 25th, 19th. 1975. I started reading. Every night, I'd sit there on the couch and read. First time through, I just started at the beginning. I didn't know any better. I just started Genesis and plowed through. I probably skimmed all the genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Just started reading. First time through, rough. Went back, did it again. Next time through, started recognizing some names. I even looked at the genealogies and thought, I remember that guy. I remember that one. I didn't remember many of them, but I remembered a few. At least they looked familiar. And just kept doing that. I'm going to guesstimate over the next several years, 20, 25 times. And as I read, my life changed. I began to know more of what God said, more of what was right and wrong for me. Not perfect by any stretch, but growing. And that's all God asks, growing. We're moving towards maturity. We're, we're learning to do the next right thing. It's not that we do it every time, but we're getting better. So, what are you going to do with this message? What is your next right thing? For some of you, maybe it will be adopting some form of a Bible reading project. I'm going to start reading the book. If he's my savior and I'm going to be his followers, it's imperative that I begin to read. If you can't read, the Bible is on audio. You can have it read to you. But for others of you, you've been around a while. Maybe the next right thing for you is, man, George is pestering me to teach something. Maybe Maybe I will begin to share with other people what God's given me. 
For others, you've been hearing about K groups and reading the sign-up sheets, but you've never plugged in for whatever reason. Maybe your next right thing is to say, I'm going to sign up today for one of those K groups. I'm going to study the Bible with a small group of people in somebody's home and get to know them at a personal level and see what God does with that. I'm not going to give you everything that could be your next right thing, but you get the idea. What is your next right thing? Fresh in a new year, it's a great time to make some choices today. But to be Jesus' follower, I'm going to do the next right thing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to share some things from your word today that have helped me immensely, and I need all the help I can get. I pray that you would work as only you can do, only you can prod our hearts, only you can open our eyes to see, and so take the message and do with it as you will. And if there's somebody here that for them the next right thing is to stop kicking tires and say, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. Man, what a great next thing that would be. So open eyes, work in hearts, and use this response time for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So if your next thing is something that you want to come and pray about or come and ask me to pray for you about, I'll be standing up front. If you need Christ as your Savior, I'll be glad to take his word and introduce you to him today. Uh, Let's stand as we sing a hymn of invitation, and you come if you need to.